5. And the evils of prohibition. To this group always belong the black sheep husbands who, after taking their wives to the country club, disappear and remain away until they are sent for because it is time to go home. When they come back shamefaced and scented with scotch, every American city has also what Don Marquis calls its little group of serious thinkers, women, most of them possessed of an ardent desire to keep abreast of the times. These women belong to clubs and literary societies which are more serious than war. They are always reading papers or attending lectures, and at these lectures they get a strange assortment of cultural information and misinformation, delivered with ghastly assurance by heterogeneous gentlemen in cutaway coats, who go about and spout for pay. If you meet these ladies, and they suspect you of being infested by the germs of culture, they will open fire on you with a thought about which you may detect a curious ghostly fragrance, as of Alfred Noyes's lecture, last week, or of the New Republic, or the Literary Digest, the most liberal of them may even take the Massays, precisely as people rather like them used to take the Philistine, a generation or two ago, among the members of this group are the women who work violently for suffrage something in which I personally believe, but which, merely because I believe in it, I do not necessarily like to take in my coffee as a substitute for sugar, on my bread as a substitute for butter, and in my ear as a substitute for pleasant general conversation. I do not wish to seem to speak disparagingly of women of this type, for they are doing good, and they will do more good when they have become more accustomed to possessing minds, having but recently discovered their minds, they are playing with them enthusiastically, like children who have just discovered their new toys on Christmas morning. It is delightful to watch them. It is diverting to have them pop ideas at you with that bright and efficient, assertive look which seems to say, See, I am a liberal woman, a woman of the new type. I meet men on their own ground. Do you wish to talk of birth control, social hygiene, and sex attraction? Or shall we reverse the order? Or shall I show you how much I know about Bria, and household economics, and Ellen Key, and eugenics, and George Meredith? and post-impressionism, and Robert's Rules of Order, and Theosophy, and conditions in the 16th Ward, when one thinks of these city groups, and of mail-order houses, and Fords, one may begin to fear it is indeed true that we are becoming standardized, but when one lets one's mind drift over the country as the eye drifts over a map, when one thinks of the quantities of modest, thoughtful, gentle, generous, intelligent, sound American families which are to be found in every city and every town, and thinks again, in a twinkling, of sheriffs and mining camp policemen in the far west, of boys going to Harvard, and other boys going to the University of Kansas, others to the old southern universities, so rich in tradition, and still others to Annapolis or West Point, when one thinks of the snow glittering on the Rocky Mountain Wall, back of Denver, of sleepy little towns drowsing in the sun beside the Mississippi, of Charles W. Eliot of Cambridge, and High Gill of Seattle, of Dr. Lyman Abbott of New York and Tom Watson of Georgia, of General Leonard Wood and Colonel William Jennings Bryan, of ex-slaves living in their cabins behind Virginia manor houses, and Filipino and Kanaka fishermen living in villages built on stilts beside the mines below New Orleans, of the dry salt desert of Utah, and two great rivers meeting between green rocky hills, at Harper's Ferry, of men working in offices at the top of the Woolworth Building in New York, and other men working thousands of feet below the ground, in the copper mines of Butte and the iron and coal mines of Birmingham when one thinks of these things one quickly ceases to fear that the United States is standardized, 
and instead begins to fear that few Americans will ever know the varied wonder of their country, and the varied character of its inhabitants, their problems, hopes, and views. If I lived somewhere in the region of Boston, New York, or Philadelphia and wished quickly to learn whether the country were really standardized or not, I should get into my automobile or into someone else and take an autumn tour through Baltimore, past Dorgan Manor, some miles to the west of Baltimore, on to Frederick, Maryland where they dispute, quite justly, I believe, the truth of the Barbara Fritchie legend, and thence, over the mountain wall, and down into the northeastern corner of the most irregularly shaped state in the Union, West Virginia, I should strike for Harper's Ferry, and from there run to Charlestown, a few miles distant where John Brown was tried and executed for the Harper's Ferry raid, and after circulating about that corner of the state, I should go down into Virginia by the good highway which leads from Charlestown to Berryville, per single quote v single quote L. They pronounce it and to Winchester 20 miles away, where they say that Sheridan's ride was nothing to make such a lot of talk about, and then back, by way of Berryville, and over the Blue Ridge Mountains into the great fox hunting counties of Virginia, Clark, Loudon, and Fauquier. Here I should see a hunt meet or a race meet. There are many other places to which I might go after that but as I meant only to suggest an easy little tour, I shall stop at this point, contenting myself with saying that not far to the south is Charlottesville, where Jefferson built that most beautiful of all universities, the University of Virginia, and his wonderful house Monticello, that Staunton pronounced as without the U, where Woodrow Wilson was born, lies west of Charlottesville, while Fredericksburg, where Washington's mother lived, lies to the northeast some such trip as this I should take instead of a conventional New England tour, and before starting I should buy a copy of Louise Clauser Hale's delightful book, Into the Old Dominion. One beauty of the trip that I suggest is that it isn't all the same. In one place you get a fair country hotel, in another an inn, and somewhere along the way you may have to spend a night in a private house. Also, though the roads through Maryland, and the part of West Virginia I speak of, are generally good, my experience of Virginia roads, especially through the mountains, leads me to conclude that in respect to highways Virginia remains a backward state, but who wants to ride always over oiled roads, always to hotels with marble lobbies, or big white porches full of hungry and young women, and old ladies, knitting, only the standardized tourist, and I am not addressing him, I am talking to the motorist who is not ossified in habit who has a love of strangeness and the picturesque not only in scenery but in houses and people and the kind of life those people lead, for it is quite true that, as Professor Roland C. Usher said in his, Fan Americanism, the information in New York about Buenos Aires is more extended, accurate, and contemporaneous than the notions in Maine about Alabama, isolation is more a matter of time than of space, and common interests are due to the ease of transportation and communication more often than geographical location. Chapter X Harper's Ferry and John Brown Mad Old Brown, Osawatomi Brown, with his 18 other crazy men, went in and took the town, Edmund Clarence S. The three states meet at Harper's Ferry, and the line dividing two of them is indicated where it crosses the station platform, if you alight at the rear end of the train, you are in Maryland, at the front, you are in West Virginia, this I like, I have always liked important but invisible boundaries boundaries of states or better yet, of countries, when I cross them I am disposed to step high, as though not to trip upon them, and then to pause with one foot in one land and one in another, 
trying to imagine that I feel the division running through my body. Harper's Ferry is an entrancing old town, a drowsy place, piled up beautifully, yet carelessly, upon terraced roads clinging to steep hills, which slope on one side to the Potomac, on the other to the Shenandoah, and come to a point, like the prow of a great ship, at the confluence of the two. There is something foreign in the appearance of the place. Many times, as I looked at old stone houses, a story or two high on one side, three or four stories on the other, seeming to set their claws into the cliffs and cling there for dear life. I thought of houses in Capri and Amalfi, and in some towns in France, and again there were low cottages built of blocks of shale covered with a thin veneer of white plaster showing the outlines of the stones beneath, which, squatting down amid their trees and flowers, resembled peasant cottages in Normandy or Brittany, or in Ireland, it is a town in which to ramble for an hour, uphill, down and around, stopping now to delight in a crumbling stone wall, tied together with Kenilworth ivy, now to watch a woman making apple butter in a great iron pot, now to see an old negro clamber slowly into his rickety wagon, take up the rope reins, and start his skinny horse with the surprising words, come hither, now to look at an old tangled garden, terraced rudely up a hillside, now to read the sign, on a telegraph pole in the village, bearing the frank threat, if you hitch your horses here they will be turned loose, now you will come upon a terraced road, at one side of which stands an old house draped over the rocks in such a way as to provide entrance from the ground level, on any one of three stories, or in an expected view down a steep roadway, or over ancient moss-grown housetops to where, as an old book I found there puts it, between two ramparts, in a gorge of savage grandeur, the lordly Potomac takes to his embrace the beautiful Shenandoah, the liaison between the rivers, described in this Rambolasian manner by the author of The Annals of Harper's Ferry, has been going on for a long time with all the brazen publicity of a love scene on a park bench. I recommend the matter to the attention of the Society for the Suppression of Vice, which once took action to prohibit a novel by Mr. Theodore Dreiser. A great many people wish to read Mr. Dreiser's books yet no one has to read them if he does not want to. But it is a different matter with these rivers. Sensitive citizens of Harper's Ferry and pure-minded passengers on the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad are obliged daily to witness what is going on. Before the days of the Society for the Suppression of Vice, and of the late Anthony Comstock, when we had no one to make it clear to us exactly what was shocking, little was thought of the public scandal between the Potomac and the Shenandoah. Thomas Jefferson seems to have rather liked it, there is a point above the town, known as Jefferson's Rock, at which, it is said, the author of the Declaration of Independence stood and uttered a sentiment about the spectacle. Everybody in Harper's Ferry agrees that Jefferson stood at Jefferson's Rock and said something appropriate, and any one of them will try to tell you what he said, but each version will be different. The young lady told me that he said, this view is worth the trip across the Atlantic Ocean. The young man in a blue felt head of the Friday egg variety said that Jefferson declared, with his well-known simplicity, this is the grandest view I ever seen. An old man who had to go through the tobacco chewer's pre-conversational right before replying to my question gave it as, Theophesty, they ain't nothing in Europe nor Switzerland nor nowheres else, I reckon, to beat this here scenery. The man at the drugstore quoted differently alleging the saying to have been, Europe has nothing on this, whereas the livery stable man's version was, this has that famous German river the Rhine River don't they call it, skin to death, whatever Jefferson's remark was, there has been added to the spectacle at Harper's Ferry, since his day, a new feature, which, could he have but seen it, 
must have struck him forcibly, and might perhaps have caused him to say more, at a lofty point upon the steep wall of Maryland Heights, across the Potomac from the town, far, far up upon the side of the cliff, commanding a view not only of both rivers, but of their meeting place and their joint course below, and of the lovely contours of the Blue Ridge Mountains, fading to smoky coloring in the remote distance, there has, of late years, appeared the outline of a gigantic face, which looks out from its emplacement like some Teutonic god in vast effigy, its huge luxuriant mustaches twining east and west as though in symbolism of the conquest of a continent, a blue and yellow background, tempered somewhat by the elements, serves to attract attention to the face and to the legend which accompanies it, but the thing one sees above all else, the thing one recognizes, is the face itself, with its look half tragic, half resigned, yet always so inscrutable, for it is none other than the beautiful brooding countenance of Gerhard Menon, the talcum powder gentleman, the great story of Harper's Ferry is of course the John Brown story, Joseph I.C. Clark, writing in the New York, son, of Sir Roger Casement's execution for treason in connection with the Irish Rebellion, compared him with John Brown and also with Don Quixote, the spiritual likeness between these three bearded figures is striking enough, all were idealists, all were fanatics, Brown's ideal was a noble one that of freedom but his manner of attempting to translate it into actuality was that of a madman, he believed not only that the slaves should be freed, but that the blood of slaveholders should be shed in atonement, in Bleeding Kansas, he led the Osawatomi massacre, and committed cold-blood murders under the delusion that the sword of the Lord was in his hand, in October, 1859, Brown, who had for some time been living under an assumed name in the neighborhood of Harper's Ferry, led a score of his followers, some of them Negroes, in a surprise attack upon the government arsenal at this place, capturing the watchman and taking possession of the buildings. It was his idea to get the weapons the arsenal contained and give them to the slaves that they might rise and free themselves, before this plan could be executed. However, Brown and his men were besieged in the armory, and here, after a day or two of bloody fighting, with a number of deaths on both sides, he was captured with his few surviving men, by Colonel Later General Robert E. Lee, whose aide, upon this occasion, was J.E.B. Stewart, later the Confederate cavalry leader. Stewart had been in Kansas and it was he who recognized the leader of the raid as Brown of Osawatomie. It is said that Brown's violent anti-slavery feeling was engendered by his having seen, in his youth, a colored boy of about his own age cruelly misused. He brooded over the wrongs of the blacks until, as some students of his life believe, he became insane on this subject. His utterances show that he was willing to give up his life and those of his sons and other followers if by such action he could merely draw attention to the cause which had taken possession of his soul. In the course of the fighting he saw his two sons mortally wounded, and was himself stabbed and cut. Throughout the fight and his subsequent trial at Charlestown he remained imperturbable. When taken to the gallows he sat upon his coffin, in a wagon, and he not only mounted the scaffold without a tremor, but actually stood there, apparently unmoved, for ten or fifteen minutes, with the noose around his neck while the troops which had formed his escort were marched to their positions. A large number of troops were present at the execution, for it was then believed in the South that the Brown Raid was not the mere suicidal stroke of an individual fanatic, but an organized movement on the part of the Republican Party, an effort to rescue Brown was therefore apprehended. This idea was later shown to be a fallacy, Brown having made his own plans, and been financed by a few northern friends, headed by Jared Smith of New York 
There has been a tendency in the North to make a saint of John Brown, and in the South to make a devil of him. As a matter of fact he was a poor, misguided zealot, with a wild light in his eye, who had set out to do a frightful thing, for, bad though slavery was, its evils were not comparable with the horrors which would have resulted from a slave rebellion. It must be conceded, however, that those who would canonize John Brown had upon their side a strange and impressive piece of evidence. The jail where he was lodged in Charlestown and the courthouse where he was tried, still stand, and it is the actual fact that, when the snow falls, it always miraculously melts in a path which leads diagonally across the street from the one to the other. That this is true I had an impeachable testimony. Snow will not stand on the path by which John Brown crossed back and forth from the jail to the courthouse. There will be snow over all the rest of the street, but not on that path, there you can see it melting. But, as with certain other miracles, this one is not so difficult to understand if you know how it is brought about. The courthouse is heated from the jail, and the hot pipes run under the pavement. Chapters I The Virginias and the Washingtons in Colonial Times, and long thereafter, the present state of West Virginia was a part of Virginia. Virginia, in the old days, used to have no western borders to her most westerly counties, which, in theory, ran out to infinity. As the western part of the state became settled, county lines were drawn, and new counties were started farther back from the coast. For this reason, towns which are now in Jefferson County, West Virginia, used to be in that county of Virginia which lies to the east of Jefferson County, and some towns have been in several different counties in the course of their history. The people in the eastern part of West Virginia are, so far as I am capable of judging, precisely like Virginians. The old houses, when built, were in Virginia. The names of the people are Virginian names, and customs and points of view are Virginian. Until I went there I was not aware how very much this means. I do not know who wrote the school history I studied as a boy, but I do know now that it was written by a lopsided historian, and that his lop, like that of many another of his kind, led him to enlarge upon American naval and military victories, to minimize American defeats, to give an impression that the all-important early colonies were those of New England, and that the all-important one of them was Massachusetts. From this bias I judge that the historian was a Boston man. It takes a Bostonian to think in that way. They do it still. From my school history I gathered the idea that although Sir Walter Raleigh and Captain John Smith were so foolish as to dally more or less in the remote fastnesses of Virginia, and although there was a little ineffectual settlement at Jamestown, all the important colonizing of this country occurred in New England. I read about Peregrine White, but not about Virginia Dare. I read much of Miles Standish, but nothing of Christopher Newport. I read a great deal of the Mayflower, but not a word of the Susan Constant. Yet Virginia Dare if she lived, must have been nearing young ladyhood when Peregrine White was born, Captain Christopher Newport passed the Virginia Capes when Miles Standish was hardly more than a youth, in Lancashire, and the Susan Constant landed the Jamestown settlers more than a dozen years before the Mayflower landed her shipload of eminent furniture owners at Plymouth, even Plymouth itself had been visited years before by John Smith, and it was he, not the Pilgrims, who named the place, I find that some boys, today, know these things, but though that fact is encouraging, I am not writing for boys, but for their comparatively ignorant parents. Not only did the first English colony establish itself in Virginia, and the first known tobacco come from there a point the importance of which cannot be overstated but the history of the Old Dominion is in every way more romantic and heroic than that of any other state. 
The first popular government existed there long before the revolution, and at the time of the break with the mother country Virginia was the most wealthy and populous of the colonies. Some historians say that slavery was first introduced there when some Dutchmen sold to the colonists a shipload of Negroes, but I believe this point is disputed. The Declaration of Independence was, of course, written by a Virginian, and made good by the sword of one. The first president of the United States was a Virginian, and so is the present chief executive. The whole of New England has produced but four presidents, Ohio has produced six, but Virginia has given us eight. The first British army to land on this continent Braddock's landed in Virginia, and in that state our two greatest wars were terminated by the surrenders of Cornwallis and of Lee. And, last, the gallant Lee himself was a Virginian of the Virginians the son of the distinguished Henry Lee who said of Washington that he was, first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen, on the pleasant drive of perhaps a dozen miles, from Harper's Ferry to Charlestown, I noticed here and there, at the roadside, tyrannical stones, suggesting monuments, but bearing no inscription save that each had a number. On inquiry I learned that these were indeed Confederate monuments, but that to find out what they marked it was necessary to go to the county courthouse at Charlestown and look up the numbers in a book, of which there is but one copy. These monuments were set out three or four years ago. They appeared suddenly, almost as though they had grown overnight, and many people wondered, as I had, what they meant. Elois, one Charlestown young lady asked another, What's that monument out in front of your house with the number 21 on it? Oh, replied Elois, that's where all my sweeters are buried. One of the things which gives Jefferson County, West Virginia, its Virginian flavor is the collection of fine old houses which adorn it. Many of these houses are the homes of families bearing the name of Washington, or having in their veins the blood of the Washingtons. It is said that there is more Washington blood in Charlestown which, by the way, should not be confused with Charleston, capital of the same state, than in any other place, if not in all the rest of the world together. The nearest competitors to Charlestown in this respect are Westmoreland County, Virginia, and the town of Kentucky, Illinois, where resides the Spotsit Augustine Washington family, said to be the only Washington group to have taken the Union side in the Civil War. It is rumored also that all the Washingtons are Democrats, although that fact is hard to reconcile, at the present time, with the statement that, among the 5,000 of them, there is but a single federal office holder. The settling of the Washingtons in Jefferson County, West Virginia, came about through the fact that George Washington, when a youth of 16 or 17, became acquainted with that part of what was then Virginia, through having gone to survey for Lord Fairfax who had acquired an enormous tract of land in the neighboring county of Clark, which is still in the mother state, to this estate, called Green Owali Court, his lordship, it is recorded, came from England to isolate himself because a woman with whom he was in love refused to marry him. In this general neighborhood George Washington lived for three years, and local enthusiasts affirm that to his having drunk the lime impregnated waters of this valley was due his great stature. The man who informed me of this theory had lived there a ways. He was about five feet three inches tall, and had drunk the waters all his life plain and otherwise. Washington's accounts of the region so interested his brothers that they finally moved there, acquired large tracts of land, and built homes. Charlestown, indeed, was laid out on the land of Charles Washington, and was named for him, and there is evidence that George Washington, who certainly gave the lines for the roads about the place, also laid out the town. Another brother, 
John Augustine, left a large family, while Samuel, the oldest, described as a rollicking country squire, was several years short of fifty when he died, but for all that had managed to marry five times and to find, nevertheless, spare moments in which to lay out the historic estate of Harewood, not far from Charlestown, it is said that George Washington was his brother's partner in this enterprise, but excepting in its interior, which is very beautiful, there is no sign, about the building, of his graceful architectural touch, George Washington spent much time at Harewood, Lafayette and his son visited there, and there the sprightly widow, Dolly Todd, married James Madison, this wedding was attended by President Washington and his wife and by many other national figures, the bride made the journey to Harewood in Jefferson's coach, escorted by Madison and a group of his friends on horseback, and history makes mention of a very large and very gay company, this is all very well until you see Harewood, for, substantial though the house island with its two-foot stone walls, it has but five rooms, two downstairs and three up, where did they all sleep, the question was put by the practical young lady whom I accompanied to Harewood, but the wife of the farmer to whom the place is rented could only smile and shake her head, the bedroom now occupied by this farmer and his wife has doubtless been occupied also by the first president of the United States and his wife, the fourth president and his wife, by Lafayette, and by a king of France for Louis Philippe, and his brothers, the Duc de Montpensier and the Comte de Beaujolais, spent some time at Harewood during their period of exile, having read in an extract from the Baltimore Sun that Harewood, which is still owned in the Washington family, was a place in which all Washingtons took great and proper pride, that it was the lodestone which draws the wandering Washingtons back to the old haunts. I was greatly shocked on visiting the house to see the shameful state of dilapidation into which it has been allowed to pass. The porches and steps have fallen down, the garden is a disreputable tangle, and the graves in the yard are heaped with tumble-down stones about which the cattle graze. The only parts of the building in good repair are those parts which time has not yet succeeded in destroying. The drawing room, containing a mantelpiece given to Washington by Lafayette, and the finest wood paneling I have seen in any American house, has held its own fairly well, as has also the old stairway, imported by Washington from England, but that these things are not in ruins, like the porches, is no credit to the Washingtons who own the property today, and who, having rented the place, actually leave family portraits hanging on the walls to crack and rot through the cold winter, if there are indeed 5,000 Washingtons, and if they are proud of their descent, a good way for them to show it would be to contribute 25 cents each to be expended on putting Harewood in respectable condition. The last member of the Washington family to own Mount Vernon was John Augustine Washington, of Charlestown, who sold the former home of his distinguished collateral ancestor. This Mr. Washington was a Confederate officer in the Civil War. He had a son named George, whose widow, if I mistake not, is the Mrs. George Washington of Charlestown, of whom I heard an amusing story. With another Charlestown lady this Mrs. Washington went to the Columbian Exposition in Chicago, and the two attended the fair together on Washington Day. On this occasion Mrs. Washington made a purchase in one of the buildings, and ordered it sent to her home in Charlestown. What name? Asked the clerk, Mrs. George Washington. The clerk concluded that she was joking. I want your real name. He insisted with a smile, but plaintively protested the gentle Mrs. Washington. That is the only name I have. One of the most charming of the old houses in the neighborhood of Charlestown, and one of the few which is still occupied by the descendants of its builder. 
is Piedmont, the residence of the Briscoe family. It is a brick house, nearly a century and a half old, with a lovely old portico, and it contains two of the most interesting relics I saw on my entire journey in the South. The first of these is the wallpaper of the drawing room, upon which is depicted, not in pattern, but in a series of pictures with landscape backgrounds, various scenes representing the adventures of Telemachus on his search for his father. I remember having seen on the walls of the parlor of an old hotel at South Berwick, Maine, some early wallpaper of this character, but the pictures on that paper were done in various shades of gray, whereas the Piedmont wallpaper is in many colors. The other relic is a letter which Mrs. Briscoe drew from her desk quite as though it had been a note received that morning from a friend. It was written on tough buff colored paper, and, though the ink was brown with age, the handwriting was clear and legible and the paper was not broken at the folds. It was dated, Odeham, September 1st, 1633, and ran as follows, to drive John Briscoe. Greetings, dear sir, as the Privy Council have decided that I shall not be disturbed or dispossessed of the charter granted by His Majesty the Ark and Pinnist of Will Sail from Gravesend about the 1st of October, and if you are of the same mind as when I conversed with you, I would be glad to have you join the colony. With high esteem, your most obedient servant, Cecilies Baltimore. This letter from the second Lord Baltimore refers to the historic voyage which resulted in the first settlement of Maryland, 13 years after the landing of the pilgrims at Plymouth. As for Dr. Briscoe, to whom the letter was written, he was one of the 300 original colonists, but after settling in Street Mary's, near the mouth of the Potomac, removed to the place where his descendants still reside. Farther out in Jefferson County the motorist may pass through two curious hamlets which, though not many miles from Charlestown, had the era being completely removed from the world. One of these was known, many years ago, as Middlewey, and later as Small.